0: Uh, There we go. Afternoon, everybody, or good morning, depending on where you all are, or good evening. Um, Welcome to today's uh, webinar. Um, I am Rex Black, Uh, I'm president of RBCS. We are a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. Our team of international consultants deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services for companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, please submit them via your webinar interface. Please use the question interface, not the chat interface. Uh, and uh, please note that I will be answering those only at the end. So today um, I'm going to uh, reprise one of uh, my uh, most favorite and topical presentations, based on audience reaction, which is shift left and friends, and what these uh, mean for you as a uh, as professional testers. Um, so, um, a little background on the on this rather odd-looking uh, cover page here, a title page. You wonder what two by fours have to do with uh, shift left. Well. You may think of shift left as this kind of new thing that just came along and you just started hearing about it five, 10 years ago. But in fact, like a lot of things uh, that you start hearing about, they actually have been around for a long time and have just come back around. Um, so I worked on a project in the 1990s at uh, Dell Computer uh, with a led by a fellow named Wren McNary. And Wren, um, uh, the, well, the, the, the slogan of this project was shift left. And the idea was that we were going to try to move the discovery and removal of defects as close as possible to their source of origin. And this is a very uh, cross-functional collaborative kind of effort as it still is today, shift left. And so therefore, uh, Ren decided that he needed a way of, um, of motivating collaboration, persuading people to collaborate. So he got this short two by four about two and a half feet long and he wrote on it uh, with a sharpie shift left didn't look quite like this and unfortunately i don't have the original available to me maybe ren has it at home he, he being fortunate enough to be retired now but uh, anyway he so said shift left on it and he would uh, jokingly walk into meetings carrying his his two by four and shift left shift left so trying to encourage people to, uh, to collaborate and to work, to uh, discover defects earlier and remove them earlier. So shift left, is a best practice whose time has come or come back maybe is more uh, appropriate. So shift left is one of the sort of latest buzzwords. And then of course you hear about continuous integration and continuous delivery and continuous deployment and DevOps. And these have been buzzwords for, oh, decade-ish now. Uh, some of them longer than others. So what what does all this mean uh, for you as a tester? What, what is it all about? Um, what the heck is an s debt? Uh, something else we'll talk about here in this call, this uh, <clears throat> webinar. Um, what does this mean for automation? Um, so we do an automation the good old-fashioned way uh, through the graphical user interface, and is that actually the good old-fashioned way anyway? Uh, is this freaking you out? It shouldn't be freaking you out. This should be actually making you happy because this creates all sorts of fun opportunities for you as a professional tester, um, very exciting opportunities. But you do have to get ready to get your study hat on. Um, if your background is not particularly technical, then uh, what you may find is that uh, um, you've got uh, you got some things to learn. But you know that's part of being a professional is continuing to learn things, right? So let's dive into it. So what is shift left and is it actually your friend? Well, what shift left is definitely is not is waterfall. Okay, not a little waterfall like you see here or a big waterfall like you'd see at, uh, uh, you know, that uh, famous um, uh, falls at, uh, in, in Africa, you know, Dr. Livingston, I presume, whatever whatever that one is, trivia question there for any of you who can remember what what the the river falls were where livingston uh met up uh with the the other explorer who bumped into him anyway it's not it's not any kind of waterfall it's sort of anti-waterfall um so shift left is is kind of a catch-all that talks about concepts associated with agile methodologies which of course were about faster cycle times which had the result of um moving the discovery and resolution of defects closer to the point of origin and then you have lean which also espouses that kind of thing of don't just keep track of defects remove them immediately um kanban um sort of a lean-ish kind of approach uh, having to do with monitoring uh, work in progress again trying to remove bottlenecks uh open source is another um Uh, contributor to the the legacy of of shift left, lots of different people contributing uh, things. And uh, in this case, the things being lots of uh, very useful and free tools. So um, let's kind of go through these buzzwords and unbuzz them. So we can say that shift left testing is an approach to software testing and system testing in which testing is performed earlier in the life cycle. So it's left in the project timeline. So that's basically the first half of the old Maxim test early and test often, which goes back to at least the ni- early 1990s, probably the mid-1980s. I think you can find that in some of Hetzel's Hetzel's work and certainly Gelperin's work from then. If you don't know who Hetzel and Gelperin are, then um, you know you need to do a little bit of research on your founding fathers of software testing Uh, The the two of them together with Boris Beiser are, uh, and Glenford Myers are uh, pretty much the the fountains of a lot of the great ideas in software testing. And if you think they're old irrelevant dinosaurs, you need to go back and look at their books and see how much of that stuff is still relevant. Now, continuous integration and continuous delivery or CICD is basically a merged approach to development and testing. So developers are gonna build the code uh, collaboratively, put it into a master branch and check the issues. So you're building, you're testing and catching bugs as early as possible, especially things like integration bugs. So you kind out of opposite of big bang integration. Now continuous deployment would be CICD taken to its natural conclusion where the software is produced and uh, is actually deployed. Um at any point that people want in some cases you know minute by minute um so here here of course the idea is to get the defects associated with the new and changed features out pretty much immediately upon introduction um so you have to have a very very smooth process for any of this stuff to work ci cd for sure and continuous deployment especially um because if you have any sort of hiccups along the way, they, they lead into delays. What, what could a hiccup be? Uh, test failures, for example. Test failures that are surfacing issues that could have been dealt with before. Um, so, you know, getting, this, getting continuous deployment going means a lot of things working right. And we're gonna talk about what those things are here in the next uh, uh, few minutes. And we have DevOps, which is of course, a clipped compound of DevOps uh, development and operations. And then there's DevSecOps, which adds security into that mix. And basically the idea is that we don't just build stuff and throw it over the fence to operations and security, but we have product management, software development, security, and operations professionals all collaborating to try to get the software into production as soon as possible. And here again, we're going to have to have a lot of automation and a lot of insight into what's going on with regard to software integration, software testing, deployment, any sort of infrastructure changes, like for example, updating third party dependencies, like web servers, for example. Want to make sure that this is all very collaborative so that we can release software rapidly, uh, frequently and reliably. So those are our buzzwords and I'm, I'm actually currently working on as part of a software quality oversight organization. It's one of my consulting engagements that I've got going on um, as a uh, senior dev sec slash QA engineer. Um, so this involves a lot of immersion into what's going on with regard to uh, test automation at all levels and security and QA in the form of the more traditional types of testing, like system test and UAT, so breaking down barriers and getting collaborative. Um, automation is a huge part of this, not just test automation, but especially test automation, because if stuff has to be done manually, uh, it's just too slow. So let's look at what all this means from a, you know, I'm a tester. How does this affect my life perspective? All right. Well, one of the things that you may hear in uh DevOps land, shift left land, DevSecOps land, whatever title name it goes by in your organization, is this phrase SDET. Um, or some variations of that. So an SDET is a software development engineer in test, or you'll hear SET or SET software engineer in test, sometimes dev DevOps engineer, devsecops engineer, like uh, like title in that software quality oversight organization. Whatever we wanna call this person, an SDET is a highly, highly technical uh, individual. Um, They are able not only to use tools, but to build them and to customize them. Um, So we're participating in open source projects and in-house software development projects that are focusing on tooling and tool integration. they are able to write uh, scripts, test scripts, automated test scripts, uh, read other people's test scripts, read code. Um, this is pretty much where things have been heading for the last 15 or so years. A- once agile started to really emerge on the on the broader mainstream you know about 2005 ish, um, you started hearing a lot of calls for uh, testers needing uh, more technical skills. And so this this trend continues and uh, uh, provides all sorts of learning opportunities for you as a tester. So what do you need to be ready to do as an SDET? Well, certainly automation, Um, but not just automation through graphical user interface. Um, So in fact, um, one of the key ideas in DevOps test automation is do as little automation as possible through the graphical user interface. This may be standing things on their head for some testers who have focused a lot of their careers on getting to know um, tools that work through graphical user interfaces, whether commercial or open source. Latest instantiation of the open source being Selenium, of course, at least for uh, web-based, browser-based applications. So you might be thinking well wait a minute I've, I've invested a lot in learning how to automate through the graphical user interface why why shouldn't i continue to do that well you should but you should look upon the graphical user interface as the least attractive way to automate because graphical user interface test automation is slow relative to tests that are automated through other kinds of interfaces graphical user interface tests are just you know not to call them tortoises Compared to hares, is an insult to tortoises everywhere. Um, you know, it's more like like sloths, really, or even that, that may even be insulting to sloths. You know, you can have hundredfold or thousandfold differences in speed um, with regard to how many tests can be run in an hour. Now, that's not not the world's fairest comparison, of course, because graphical user interface tests tend to be larger than, say, a unit or an integration test. But still, they are slower because they are having to navigate through this user interface and often having to incorporate some ability of wait to wait for the user interface to keep up with what they're doing. Uh, graphical user interface tests are also very brittle in the sense that if the user interface changes, they'll break. Um, you know, right now, as I said, I'm with this one organization I'm working with, we've got two basic sets of automated tests, those through the graphical user interface and those that work through the, um, at the unit level or the integration level. And for the unit and integration level, the amount of false positives and issues associated with test maintenance and so forth are really, really low. Um, for the ones that work through the graphical user interface, the number of false positives on a typical run will be anywhere to 10 to 100 times higher than with the unit and integration level. And you know, every one of those false positives is something that, that somebody has got to crawl through and figure out what it means. So instead of going through a graphical user interface, command line interfaces are, are an alternative way of automating system level tests, but faster and at a less brittle interface. So if your application has a command line interface, you can and, and you can access the business logic that way, that's a great way to do that. I have in my past life built enormous complex Um, keyword driven test automation systems that worked entirely through the command line interface, no graphical user interface at all. Uh, Highly maintainable, very fast. um, And, uh, and often, often simpler, a lot simpler than, than having to figure out how to navigate the graphical user interface. If what you're trying to test is the business logic, not the presentation layer, why are you going through the presentation layer? Testing through application program interfaces for the unit and integration level tests. Great way to go. Again, fast, even faster than command line interfaces, uh, may be able to go you know, directly into certain business logic. Uh, problem with tests at the unit and integration level is that they can't always find all the different kinds of bugs, but they can find a lot of bugs. So shift left, right? Do as much testing as you can at the unit and integration level through APIs. And, um, then move on to the system level tests again, focusing on trying to get at system level testing of business logic through APIs or command line interfaces using the GUI only when necessary. Now you can also run tests through data layers going directly into the data access database so forth uh, and through the network layer. So, you know, don't, don't feel constrained. Again, if you're trying to test the business logic, ask yourself, how do I get at the business logic? If you're trying to test the presentation layer, that's great, test through the presentation layer, but then ask yourself, do I actually have to automate this test? Or is this a test that uh, makes sense to stay manual? Because some tests will. Um, So I talked about unit test, integration test, or unit integration, component integration test, talked about system test. There's also system integration test, and this is very important. If your system interacts with other systems, it's really critical that you think about how to automate testing of those interactions, um, because you can have a system that that quote unquote works fine in a standalone kind of mode, but since what it has to do is share a lot of information with other systems, if that if those information interfaces don't work, guess what? Your application doesn't work, and you know remember, the user doesn't care. You know, the user doesn't give a darn what's not working. All the user knows is not working, right? So if, you know, if it's your user and your user's experience and there's some sort of third-party dependency, external application, something like that, that if it doesn't work, your application won't work, you need to conclude that in the scope of your testing. So automation, good. Manual testing, still good to some extent. You're going to need to do it. Not all tests can be automated. Any organization that says our target is 100% automation, all they're actually saying is uh, we just won't bother to test anything that can't be tested in an automated fashion. That, frankly, is stupid. So the 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 ultimate in shift left is, of course, down in the static code analysis uh, kind of domain and the code review domain and Even lefter than that, of course, is things like design reviews and requirements reviews, user stories, uh, refinement sessions, and so forth. But pretty close to the origin of defects, at least code defects, is um, unit test. So one of the things I've noticed about Agile, which is great, is that people got really geeked out. Developers got really geeked out about unit testing, which, you know, I love that. Like developers being excited about testing, hey, that's great. You know, I spent goodly portion of the early parts of my career trying to cajole developers to care more about testing, but they often didn't. And they thought, well, we've got this test team. Let's just throw it over the fence and see what they do and what, what they find. But now they're really into it. And there's all sorts of tools and so forth around. And of course, naturally they're into it because program. It's now unit testing has now become a programming problem, not, not a write test down and then run them problem, which was what they didn't want to do. Um, But the thing that you find when you get into developers doing a lot of unit testing is that developers don't know good testing practices. So we worked with one client and unfortunately this this got put on hold when um, COVID went bananas and the whole world went to hell. Uh, Hopefully it'll come back. But we were working with this client to to, um, institute both white box and black box test design training, uh, making sure that they knew both, they were able to interpret code coverage that they were able to develop tests using behavior driven development or BDD uh, that were designed, uh, following good test design principles that they were able to apply the appropriate code coverage measures that they needed to be looking at statement branch and if safety critical than MCDC. So you want to make sure that, um, you know, the developers know what they're doing here and and a good SDET is able to coach um, the developers on the concepts, not just, oh, here's this tool, because that's the problem is that the tool is the bright, shiny object and they'll optimize to the tool, but that's not necessarily what the optimal thing is to do. Developers also need to understand that there's, you know, things that code coverage tells you and there are things that code coverage doesn't tell you. For example, code coverage can't tell you that there's functionality that ought to be in the software, but isn't because you can only measure code coverage against code that actually exists. So make sure that this doesn't become a source of false confidence where developers are saying, well, surely we found all the defects because we've covered 100% of the code. All right, so remember this scene from the the, the Matrix movie where, uh, uh, he's able to stop the bullets by holding his hands up and they all fall to the ground. Um, well, can't make you quite as powerful as Keanu Reeves here and at least in this particular movie. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of times when we, when we as professional testers think about what we're doing, we think about it from a black box point of view, right? Well, that's kind of, that's the outside the matrix perspective. Inside the matrix is understanding what's actually going on inside the system while you're running tests. These tests can be black box or white box, but you know the point here is operating system options will affect the way that your application behaves. So understand those and understand the effects they're going to have. Um, there are dynamic analysis tools available uh, both um, add-ons and built into operating systems that can look at things like how much memory is being used, what's your CPU consumption, what's your disk consumption, what's your network throughput, so forth, what's your disk throughput, um, do you have memory leaks that could lead to reliability problems and performance slowdowns. These are all things that as an, as an SDET, you want to get your head around how to do this stuff because you want to be able to report to developers, not just hey, I tried to do this thing and then this weird other thing happened and I have no idea why or what was going on on the system, uh, but you know, here's your misbehavior, have fun tracking it down. Uh, you're gonna get a lot more traction with developers in an agile shift left kind of world if you can go and say, okay, so I was running this test and all of a sudden the CPU utilization started to spike and it pegged it like 98% and it held there. And while it was holding there, I got this unhandled exception error, and then the system more or less went back to normal except the thing I was trying to do didn't work. Something along those lines is gonna give the developer a lot more uh, insight, especially when you can say, here's what the unhandled exception error message was and the specific thing I was trying to do, et cetera. Now this may or may not apply to you, but if it does, it really does. Um, Data. You know, applications, a lot of times applications exist to process data. Some cases it's not a whole lot of data, but in some cases it's enormous amounts of data. Um, So there may well be some kind of data repository sitting around, potentially big, potentially not as big, but still important. So you need to be able to get into the data, Uh, either go into it directly, via some sort of tool that allows you to query the database uh, in in an interactive way, or through a tool that allows you to run queries and get results in your automated tests. So when you do something that's supposed to result in a transformation of the underlying data, don't just assume that what you see on the screen, when it comes back and says data successfully saved, don't assume that that's necessarily correct. Be able to query the database. Find out if it's correct. Um, this gets you more to what one would call a full test oracle, right? A test oracle being the thing that predicts the expected result of the test. The more outcomes of the test you check, the closer you're getting to a full test oracle. Now you might say, well, what if what if I can't test, check every single thing? Okay, well, that's fine. Partial test oracles are okay. Um, Sometimes you know you have to just settle for, at least I know that the answer wasn't really, really wrong. Like for example, I did some work with a client that did high-frequency trading applications and, the, and these high-frequency trading applications were trying to optimize trades to maximize the amount of return on investment on a trade. Um, now, let's say that a particular trade returns a 3.7% return on investment. Is that optimal? Could they have gotten 3.8? Could they've gotten 3.9? don't know, right? We know for sure that if the return on investment is close to or less than zero, uh, that's a problem, right? So that's an example of a partial test oracle. So, you know, if you can't check everything, be ready to say, well, what can I do to try to ascertain whether whether some sort of failure has occurred? Um As I said, you know, automation through the data layer is possible. This could be direct or indirect. It could potentially indirectly automate by uh, using uh, statements to insert data into a table to trigger certain actions to happen. Um, Know enough about databases and database design and so forth to be able to review things like entity relationship diagrams and other kinds of metadata that, that explains what the application is is doing to the data Um, you could find all sorts of very undesirable things in the data models especially when they've been around for a long time Um, this can be especially interesting if you're in a project to um, migrate from a legacy application to a new application because i can tell you data migration is a major major chore in those projects and everybody always underestimates how bad it's going to be. So be ready to get in and and, and assist with that. Um, databases can be replicated and distributed as well, which adds some additional nuances to the way they're going to work. Make sure that you understand how those things are are going to affect uh, expected results. Now, this is this is all very very technical stuff. Um, You know, graduate level courses can be and are taught on this. Um, You don't necessarily have to get to that level of knowledge, but the more that you know about how the underlying data in your applications is being created, read, updated, and deleted, and the more that you can interact with it directly as part of your testing, the more valuable you're going to be as a tester. Now, as I said, my... Uh, my uh, title in this one consulting engagement, long-term consulting engagement, I'm on a senior dev DevSecOps QA consultant. Um, so SEC stands for security, security testing. And this, again, highly, highly technical, um, specialized area. If security is within your realm, then this is a place where you really want to drill down and, and uh, learn things. Um, so... Intrusion detection systems, intrusion protection systems, firewalls, and so forth. You know, the infrastructure, the infrastructure, the the environment in which the application runs, the server on which the application runs, these all have strong influences on how secure the application is. It's not enough to just write secure code. Um, you have to have what's so-called defense in depth. Um, so be able to look at the, the infrastructure in a static kind of way, also in a dynamic way using what are called sniffers, for example, to look at network traffic and various kinds of um, systems that will, will alert when um, something untoward starts to happen. Um, static analysis stools of various kinds, code reviews, um, design, Reviews, uh, all these can have security aspects, pay attention to those. Encryptions, passwords, authentication, authorization, role-based security, these are all other things that you should uh, pay attention to and learn about, especially role-based security, because even if you're saying, well, my focus is almost entirely on functional testing and functional test automation, so I don't need to worry about security. If your application has role-based security, in other words, people are allowed or disallowed to do things based on the roles that they have, then part of your testing should really involve looking at, does somebody with a particular set of, in a particular role, have the ability to do the things they're supposed to be able to do, but also are they denied the ability to do things they shouldn't be able to do? You will will make uh, friends in your your uh, application security office, your, your, you know, your CFO, chief security officer and so forth, will be very happy if they find out that one of the things that you test is making sure that if the application is not supposed to let somebody do something, it stops them from doing it. Now you might say, wow, this sounds really challenging and it sounds like a lot of work. Uh, yep. It, it certainly can be. There's a lot to know here. For example, we have a, uh, advanced level three day advanced level security tester training that just goes into great depth in what I've just spent the last couple minutes talking about. So, you might know, say, why should I do this? Well, like all of these other technical things that I'm encouraging you to, to learn, um, they will make you more marketable and they will provide for job security. These are very, very valuable skills to have. Um, and so, uh, learning them is uh, is an investment in in your, your future. Okay, integration testing. So I talked about integration testing before. The thing is that people talk about integration testing and it's just like the old joke about the weather. Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, it's kind of the same thing here. Everybody talks about integration testing, but very few people actually do it. So um here's a way to think about integration testing, okay? If you're testing two or more components of a system together, you might be doing integration testing, but you very well might not be. If all of your te- all you're doing is testing that the system functions the way one would expect it to function when multiple components are involved, that's not an integration test. An integration test is a test that is focused on interfaces, it's focused on interactions. Okay. So um, there was a Mars mission, uh, Mars polar orbiter, got all the way out to Mars, you see the diagram here, planned versus actual trajectory, you notice that it was way closer than it was supposed to be. And it crashed. How did it end up being way closer than it was supposed to be? Well, because there was communication between a piece of software at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena and the Mars Polar Orbiter, the point where it was trying to insert itself into the orbit, and uh, the um, software in Pasadena was using imperial units, so feet, miles, etc., and the software on the orbiter was using metric units. So, you know, there's, there's three ish feet in a meter. So you're communicating about things like distance and velocity, where there's a, th- a magnitude of three difference, that's going to be a problem. and That problem exists in, in the interface, right? This is the place in between. Right? And you think about things like internet of things and mobile and so forth. It's like where are all the interfaces oh, the interfaces are everywhere. And a lot of times nobody owns them. So You need to be the champion of the interfaces. So, (coughs) excuse me, Um, looking at various kinds of test techniques that can be used to design interoperability and integration tests, boundary value analysis, equivalence partitioning, pairwise testing, all of those are relevant. Direct and indirect integration is important. Direct is, you know, through an API or an endpoint, but the indirect also happens. So one system stores data somewhere that another system reads. That's That needs to be tested. So interfaces, data sources, data syncs, and so forth, this is what you want to do when you're thinking about integration test coverage. I've seen people talk about code coverage as a way of measuring integration test completely, completion. No, 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 no. No, you've got to be focused on what you're trying to cover with the tests, and you're not trying to cover code. You're trying to cover interfaces. You're trying to cover interactions. So, you know, think about this. Now, virtualization is something that you can use to virtualize interfaces, and you should use it. That's an important way of approaching uh, integration testing. But false negatives will happen with with virtualization. I would say that about once a month or so, I hear about some sort of issue where something was tested via a simulator or via virtualization or something like that, and uh, get a false negative. In other words, something got past you. Now, something else that can be useful is random, random, random testing, Okay, like waves on top of a lake, as you see here, right? Let's be, be random. So, you know, test design, techniques are, are not random. I mean, they're they're looking for defects that follow particular patterns and they're of course useful. Um, but, you know, not everything can be predicted. So there's a famous example of this that uh, uh, back in the 90s, um, Intel released a uh, new version of their uh, CPU called the Pentium. And the Pentium had what was called a floating point divide bug. So you're doing floating point math Uh, and you divided certain numbers, you got a wrong answer. Um, It turns out that there was no predictable way of finding that other than exhaustive testing. And a guy named Doug Hoffman has a write-up on the internet that you can look at to, to, to read his analysis of that. So, you know, exhaustive testing, of course, is bad, but random testing is an interesting way of going about exploring these kinds of almost infinite spaces in a way that does large samples, not of course, large, like large percentages, but it touches a lot of different places, places that you might not think to look. And of course, hackers use random stuff in chaos too. So, you know, there are things like fault injection or fuzzing tools that can allow you to corrupt um, or uh, modify data files, configuration files, or so-called dumb monkeys, which can subject systems to uh, random streams of inputs. Uh, You can look at data sequences and see if there's if they have patterns of randomness within them if they're supposed to or if they're not supposed to. So if you're involved in doing reliability testing, security testing, especially but sometimes other kinds of testing, randomness is something you need to uh, you need to try to get your head around. Now, randomness is not so much technically complicated, but it is just complicated intellectually. It's it's hard to hard to uh, understand sometimes. So, you know, spending some time studying this, uh, studying things like statistics and so forth, uh, can be very useful. Now, from random to targeted, um, you know, if you're if you're hunting bugs. Um, you know, where, what are some ways to know how to be more effective at hunting them? Um, so you can look at the code itself, use complexity analysis, for example. There are various kinds of complexity analysis metrics out there, but of course, one of the most popular is cyclomatic complexity. Uh, you'd be surprised at how confused people are about cyclomatic complexity and what it actually is. There are actually two major forms of cyclomatic complexity, which calculate... cyclomatic complexity in in very different ways with regard to certain kinds of uh, structures like compound Boolean expressions and if statements and switch case constructs. Understanding the difference between those is important. Most developers don't. Um, Knowing how to interpret cyclomatic complexity and what it means with regard to likelihood of bugs and so forth and knowing when having a cyclomatic complexity greater than 10 is in fact entirely okay, also important. Uh, being able to look at defect data and analyze patterns in defect data that tell you where there are bug clusters. You should remember where what a bug cluster is. And looking at this figure here in, uh, in the slide, you know, you can see that 69% of the defects on this particular project were found in just three components. And the remaining components, of which there were nine, and so the other 75% of the components accounted for less than a third of the defects. So if you want a bug hunt, where are you going to bug hunt? You're going to bug hunt in here. But you know what this means? This means you better be tracking your defects and you better be classifying them. All this nonsense you hear about people like, oh yeah, don't bother to track defects found in testing. Guess what? You won't be able to do this kind of analysis if you don't have reliable tracking data. If you're relying on production data, okay, that's fine. Maybe you can look at production data, try to do this kind of analysis. But remember, Production is are, defects are the ones that A, got past you in testing, and B, people care enough about to comment on. There's bias in that. Okay, estates learn from the mistakes of others. Actually, any intelligent person should learn from the mistakes of others. If you saw someone burn themselves on a hot stove, would you like walk over and say, I need to touch the hot stove? Nope. Hopefully you would not. Um, So we should learn from others' mistakes. So I talked about NASA, took a a little swipe at NASA on the Mars Polar Orbiter. Of course, the two most infamous NASA problems are Challenger and Columbia, right? So for those of you who don't remember the Challenger um, accident, there is by the way, fantastic, Uh, documentary on this by uh, what is that guy's the director's name Abrams I think his name is he's a uh, movie director but it's kind of a space geek too and he did a really good documentary on this Um, and this this just reinforced something I already knew from reading a write-up that uh, Ed Tufte had about the whole incident Um, that the the if you so the short version of what happened to the Challenger, what you which you see here right at the end of this distressing GIF file is um, the O-rings on the solid rocket boosters are, uh, fail. One of them fails, hot gases shoot out onto the liquid fuel tank and cause it to explode. Um, and uh, the reason that happened was that the, these O-rings uh, being made of rubber, the colder it got, the more brittle they got. And the engineers knew this, but they had not figured out how to effectively communicate about this. And in fact, it, it was to the point that some of these engineers were like literally in tears. These Morton Thiokol engineers are like, why can we not explain to people how bad this is? And they were you know, convinced that something horrible was gonna happen. So again, in, in one of Tufte's books on, on presentation of information, he reworks the data that the engineers gave, the Morton Thiokol engineers gave to their managers um, to show a much more convincing correlation between temperature and O-ring failure. So when you're thinking about something that could go wrong that's worrying you as a tester or a test manager, don't talk about it in terms that other people aren't gonna understand. Figure out how to communicate effectively about risk. Um, you have to be able to show that, you know, you're not just freaking out about some bad thing that could happen, because there's all sorts of bad things that could happen, but that you're able to really talk about things like likelihood and impact and express it to people in a, in a way uh, such that they'll they'll get it. Um, now, the Columbia lesson is, is similar but different. So in with the Columbia disaster, if you remember, we had ice shedding off of the liquid fuel tank is of course the liquid fuel tank is tremendously cold. Uh, So ice was shedding off of the fuel tank and bouncing off of the underside and the, and the leading edge of the wings of the shuttle during launch. Uh, And the the engineers, the NASA engineers knew that this was happening, but they said, well, you know, nothing bad has happened before. When they had seen one of these ice strikes happen, um, and on Columbia. So they said, well, we're just going to assume that this is going to be all right. um, Because, you know, it's been all right in the past. They'd seen degradation of the of the tiles of the of the insulating tiles due to these ice strikes before. So they just assumed, "Okay, well, this is just yet another incident where there's degradation of the tile due to the ice strike. Well, the problem is, of course, that the degradation of the of the heat shield tile was considerably worse. And it allowed hot gases to accumulate within the wing and melted the wing off um and you know the the it's not like the space shuttles were particularly aerodynamically stable they actually had to be landed by computer A human being could not fly them in um and uh but once the wing melted off then that was that you know there was no no obviously no way even for the computer to land it so Beware when you hear people say things like "nothing bad has happened so far" and we've been doing it this way for years. So you really do want to think about, you know, likelihood and impact um, over a longer period of time, um, and also think about it, you know, from the user or customer perspective. One of the things that that didn't happen in NASA that I think in the Columbia incident was particularly shameful was. Nobody ever talked to the astronauts about the fact that they had observed that there was significant damage to the wing. And they're like, "Well, there's nothing that, that can be done about it anyway." Well, yeah, but don't you think the astronauts would have wanted to know? You know, so thinking about things from their perspective, you know, from the user or customer perspective is important. Now, all the slagging off on NASA, I do want to say something. That NASA's safety record is absolutely remarkable. Um, you think of what, what NASA does, you know, and what, it, well, there's, you know, there's, there's the unmanned space flight, which is, you know, one thing and you're going to lose. It's okay to take some risks on that and lose some missions. Um, the manned space flight, NASA has only lost 17 people total. And in this insanely risky endeavor. And that's never once by the way, due to a software failure. The other f- failure that had fatalities was the Apollo one, um, capsule fire which again was was a, a hardware uh, f- issue, was excessive oxygen in the capsule combined with the uh, short in the wires. Uh, so I'm not not by any means saying that NASA doesn't give a damn and they don't think about safety. It's just, you know, when you do things that are exceptionally hard risk, high risk, it will show a very, very bright light on your every mistake. All right, so last thing here, You know, it was popular for a while, it's now somewhat less popular because some of the people who used to say this are now back begging to be relevant as testers again. Um, And, you know, I don't need to say who I'm talking about there, some of you probably know. Uh, If you don't, you know, you can go look up who who it was that ran around saying testing was dead back when this was popular to say, but testing's not dead. in fact, testing has just basically returned to its roots. So if you go back, I mentioned Boris Beiser, Glenford Myers, uh, two of the real founding fathers of software testing, really even before uh, Hetzel and Gelperin who kind of built on their work. And they were Dets. They were highly technical folks. Um, I'm an Det, have always been an SDET, got my start doing that, paid my way through college writing code um moved into testing so basically with it doing its shift left thing it's just time for everybody in testing to become an SDET, um and um, don't pay attention to any of this testing is dead stuff you know um but at the same time you know you need to t- change the way that you're testing because sometimes people um see us Professional testers as like these the zombies here from the Dawn of the Dead, you know, bursting in and trying to eat somebody. Um, you know that here comes bad news. Here comes the tester. You know that's that's not what you want to be um, as an SDET. Um, you want to be a valued co-contributor. All right, so. Hopefully I've convinced you here that shift left is not new shift left is just about going back to the roots of best practices of software testing. Um, So shift left and all of its associated friends need to be your friends. Um, So be an SDET. You don't have to be called an SDET. You can be called any number of things. Senior DevSecOps consultant is a good one. Uh, I like that. You could be called any number of other things beside that though. but you do have to be technical, okay? So um, if, if a lot of the stuff that I've been talking to you about makes you say, hmm, I don't know any of that or I know very little of that, then this is your opportunity to learn that stuff. Because if you don't, what you're likely to continue to run into is more and more situations where um, doors get closed, uh, opportunities aren't open, because um, absence of uh, technical knowledge. So it is incumbent on you as a professional tester to shift left. And uh, as a tester that basically means shifting your ability to be a contributor left closer to the source of defects into coding, into design, uh, into requirements, user stories, so forth. So get involved early. Uh, It has big payoff, especially for you to future proof your career. All right, so as always, I will uh, have put the um, advertisement up here. And uh, I'm going to get the Q&A panel up here to see who's got questions for us. Um, And uh, couple starter questions here. Um, so first off, you know, is there still a place for the non technical sort of what's called non T shaped tester? So let me just explain T shape T shape means you have deep knowledge in this case, in testing and related areas. And you have broad knowledge across a lot of different related areas for your system. That's T shaped S debts are T shaped in their skills. So, is there a place for the non-technical, t shaped tester? Uh, Not so much, really. I mean, in UAT, there's some, some place for this in UAT for people with domain expertise, but see, then you're just pigeonholed in a different way, pigeonholed based on your domain expertise, right? Um, And kind of limited in terms of, of the things that you could do. So, You know, I would say that if you're thinking, I'm just going to ride this thing out, I don't have to expand my skill set. Well, for one thing, I doubt you'd be listening to this because the whole point of my talk has been expand, expand, expand. And I noticed that most people who joined the webinar are still on the webinar. So if you decided this is for me, you would have already tuned out. But if you're still in any way thinking, I don't know about this, um, you know, the opportunities get fewer and fewer. So, you know, expanding your skills in these areas is, is uh, important. And plus, it's fun and interesting. It's, you know, good to know how things work. It's fun to know how things work. Um, I have a question here about, you know, what exactly is a senior dev sec ops consultant? Uh, so, you know, what does my typical day consist of? Um, well, we are we are basically an auditing type of organization. Um, so, mostly what I'm doing is uh, listening to people and consulting with people on things like unit test automation, integration test automation, uh, continuous integration, continuous deployment, or continuous uh, uh, yeah, continuous deployment uh, um, frameworks, continuous delivery frameworks. All the kind of stuff that's involved in, uh, you know, build pipelines. Conversations about that, automation through graphical user interfaces, automation through other interfaces, making the automation more robust. Um, data, data quality, um, infrastructure security, application security, uh, updates to third-party dependencies like web servers and so forth. These are all things that I'm participating in. Um, QA, of course, looking at the traditional manual QA, because there's still plenty of that happening in this organization. So T-shaped. Lots of lots of stuff across a lot of different areas and then. In depth, especially in testing related areas. Uh, So I got a question here from anonymous. not sure, why the person wants to be anonymous, but they are anonymous. Um, so it says to be an SDAT, what tools and technology should we learn? Well, um, at a high level, I would say, you know, understand the tools and technologies that are in, in uh, use at your uh, particular organization, and then make sure that you focus on that. So, programming languages that are used building your application, make sure that you at least know how to read those. Uh, Tools that could be used to automate testing, unit integration and system level testing, make sure that you understand those. And for the unit integration stuff, again, make sure that you at least know how to read those tests. Uh, Database technologies, understand the underlying database technologies behind your uh, uh, product. Um, Another thing that you need to understand. So. Yeah, know the technologies that are there. Know also the technologies that are most relevant uh, these days, right? So there's a, you know, a, a issue of making sure that you stay current, right? I mean, Python, for example, extremely popular programming language. Even if Python is not being used in your organization, it might be very soon. So, you know, that's something to consider. Uh, now I got a question from Mary here. Um, which because of time limits will have to be the last one we take. So thank you, Mary. Um, are business rules still routinely used? And if so, what approaches are used to test the business rules? There certainly are uh, situations where you have um, uh, third party business rule uh, application or systems that are used to, to handle business logic, business rules. So, you know, in that case, uh, decision tables are the classic way of testing these. Um, I bump into uh, mentions of uh, external business rule systems and decision table testing of them not infrequently, the expert witness project that I'm on right now, just last weekend, I ran into that. So if that's still something that's you're running into, uh, yep, brush up on your decision tables, not just full decision tables, but also collapsed ones, because you need to know how to make things efficient. All right, so Um, Thanks everybody for uh, joining. I hope you enjoyed this free webinar from RBCS. We do these as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not just for profit company. If you enjoy these free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you you face, please do make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting or training. We're happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need Email us info at rbcs-us.com, and we will get you a quote. Uh, If it's work that you need done that involves, that you want to involve me directly, uh, move fast and move now, because I am extremely busy, Uh, have been oddly since shortly after this whole COVID nightmare broke out, been 100% booked since about May, late May of last year. So if you're looking for help from me, certainly uh, move fast. However, keep in mind that we do have a uh, large cadre of extremely talented uh, consultants uh, available around the world that uh, we can use to uh, help implement things as well. So uh, don't despair. We can help you uh, regardless of, uh, of uh, uh, what specific needs you have. All right. Um, so thanks all for your uh, attention. Uh, as usual, the recording will be posted uh, shortly. Uh, watch the RBCS social media. Uh, and uh, you will see it uh, see it when it happens. Thanks, everybody. See you all uh, next time.